Uh, If you would please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8, that's going to be the text for this morning's message, Psalm chapter 8, and it is a psalm I suspect that is familiar to many of us, if not us all, and so let's uh, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 8, and we'll read this chapter in its entirety. Psalm chapter 8. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of, our, of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him the dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer before we hear the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would uh, further open the eyes of our faith, that you would take away our doubts and our sins, that you would fill us with greater faith, that we might not only hear your word, but believe on it, and not only believe on it, but trust in it, O Lord, and that through it you would point us to the work of Christ, that we would hide beneath the shadow of his wings and seek our redemption and sanctification solely in him. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, among the 150 Psalms, Psalm 8 is perhaps one of the more familiar to us, And it's, I think, because over the years within the church, the church has used Psalm 8 as the basis of a number of various hymns, uh, as well as even praise choruses. I can remember singing a praise chorus based upon this particular psalm when I was a teenager and in church. And we sang a praise chorus that used the phrase and the refrain from verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the use of Psalm 8 uh, in worship goes back centuries, uh, as the beautiful paraphrase of Isaac Watts attests. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how wondrous great is thine exalted name, the glories of thy heavenly state, let men and babes proclaim. When I behold thy works on high, the moon that rules the night, and stars that well adorn the sky, those moving worlds of light. And so here, Isaac Watts just traces the lines of this psalm as he looks out upon the creation and he can see it just shining and beaming with the glory and the beauty of God. And yet, as I think as familiar as the church's collective knowledge of Psalm 8 is, uh, one of the things that we may not realize is that Psalm 8 is perhaps one of the most cited psalms in all of the New Testament. Uh, It is regularly picked up at a number of different points throughout the New Testament. And so I think that what this does is it begins to clue us in to the importance and the significance of this psalm for the person and work of Christ. 
Now, we, we read Psalm 8, and we might not immediately connect it with Jesus because we can undoubtedly see that it casts a backward glance looking at the creation of Adam. And not only at the creation of Adam, but the glory with which God invested Adam at his creation. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him, that you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put him over all of the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. You've given him all of these things. And while we can undoubtedly reflect upon the glorious creation of Adam, I suspect that there's a sense in which we perhaps think of it, and we think of it as a memory of a bygone day. We think of it as something that was given but lost. You know, one of the things, I was on a recent trip, and my wife thinks that I didn't, but I think I did. I I lost a set of headphones, and I use them a lot, and I, especially when I'm traveling, and I lost them. And when I think about those headphones, I think of the loss. Because every time I think of them, I think, well, I probably need to get some more, but oh, I don't want to spend the money. I've lost them. Is that the way that we look at Psalm 8? We think of the beauty. We think of the glory of Adam's creation. We think of that pristine moment when God crowned Adam with all of those things. But then we also know that Adam fell. And so we think of Psalm 8 as something lost. But if, on the other hand, Psalm 8 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, then that tells us that Psalm 8 does not merely look back upon the creation of Adam, although it most certainly does, but that it's also casting a glance forward. It's casting a glance forward. And what this tells us is that Psalm 8 does not merely speak of Adam, but it also prophetically speaks of Christ. It speaks of the promise and the hope that comes to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. I think in this vein, it should strike us as an important fact that among the titles that Jesus uses for himself, Son of Man is the most used title for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title, more than his own name, more than Messiah, i.e. Christ. So this should tell us that Psalm 8 is not only a glance back, but it's also a hopeful and anticipatory look forward to the hope and the promise that comes to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. So what we want to do is we first want to look at the first Son of Man. We want to look at Adam and see what the psalmist has to say about him. But then second, we want to see what the scriptures and the rest of the New Testament speaks of when it talks about the second son of man or Jesus. And then third and finally, we want to give thought to what our response should be to all of this, which is praising Jesus, the son of man. So let's give thought first to the first son of man. I think that if there's an image that comes to mind when I think of Psalm 8, it's perhaps that famous photograph taken by the NASA astronauts entitled Earth Rising. The Apollo astronauts took a picture from the moon looking upon the earth, and I think that this is perhaps the gaze that David held as he thought about the creation of man. 
and that he looks out upon the creation, but as he looks upon it in all of its beauty and all of its splendor and grandeur, he zooms in to the creation of human beings. And it's against the backdrop of the beauty and the glory of the creation that he reflects upon our creation as human beings. He says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Think about the vastness of the cosmos. Think about the vastness of the cosmos. I had to look this one up, because remember... For those of you who know me, my, my, my knowledge of science comes from Star Wars. Okay? So I looked all of this up. I am by no means any type of scientific expert. But that being said, I, I, I found out that the cosmos, the universe, stretches across 93 billion light years. That's how expansive the cosmos is. And then perhaps you gave thought to this, if you saw this in the press the other day, is that it was reported a couple weeks back that they, you know, did some fine-tuning and, and, I don't know, launched up another telescope, and they were able to start to begin to count and estimate as to the number of galaxies that are in the universe. You know, we have our galaxy, which is the Milky Way galaxy. Well, they say that there are as many as up to two trillion other galaxies out there. Two trillion galaxies. To me, that's unfathomable. I cannot wrap my, my mind around those types of numbers. And in fact, when you look up into the heavens and you look up into the sky, the, the, all you get is one thirty-two millionth Looking at my notes, yes. One thirty-two millionth. That's all you're seeing is one thirty-two millionth of the galaxies that are that, that are that you can see. And that in that one swath of sky that you can see, you can look at fifty-five hundred galaxies. At least that's what's within your line of sight. Think about that for a minute. Think about that massive expanse. And then think of it by contrast as to how seemingly insignificant we are against the backdrop of this expanse. We are one insignificant, tiny speck of cosmic dust orbiting around one pedestrian star that is one of trillions and the sovereign creator of the universe who made it all has condescended to create us and to invest us with glory and honor and and to impress upon us his image. We are the only creatures in this world that bear his image. Think about that for a moment. And then ponder with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In Peggy Noonan's book, When Character Was King, which is 
her uh, biography about President Ronald Reagan, she tells the story, the true story, of an elderly woman by the name of Frances Green. She was 83 years old, and she lived on her small Social Security check. But what she would do is once a month, she would write a $1 check to the Republican National Committee. And so she would send that $1 a month check off each month because she was living on a fixed income. And so she was very pleased and excited at one point to receive an invitation to a White House event to meet the president. But she failed to notice the fine print on the bottom, which indicated that you had to give a sizable donation in order to gain access. So what she did is she saved her pennies, she saved her dollars, and she bought a four-day train ticket to Washington, D.C., and she slept in coach because she couldn't afford uh, to purchase a sleeper car ticket. So she uh, arrived at the White House, and when she arrived at the White House for this banquet, uh, she was denied access. She was not allowed to enter. And she tried to explain the situation to the guard, but the guard said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm not able to let you in. You are not on the list. Well, standing behind her was uh, an executive, a high-ranking executive from the Ford Motor Corporation, and he saw everything that happened, and he began to talk to her, and she told him her story. And so he said, all right, I tell you what, Francis, if you return here tomorrow, I can give you a tour of the White House. And so this executive with the Ford Motor Company also communicated to President Reagan's staff uh, about the whole situation. And so the next day, Francis arrived. And the the, the executive uh, and Francis toured the White House But the executive told her, I'm sure that you will not get to see the president uh, because it was a very busy day. In fact, on this particular day, the attorney general, Ed Meese, had just resigned, and so it was somewhat chaotic. But as they rounded the the corner out of the hallway and came up upon the Oval Office, uh, the, the, the National Security Council was just dismissing, and there were a number of high-ranking officials and generals that walked out. But standing through the door was the president of the United States, and when the president caught a glimpse of Francis, he said, Francis! Francis! And he motioned her to come in to the Oval Office. Here is this woman. She is in the eyes of the world no one. She is not a woman of means. And yet the most important person in the country, the President of the United States, beckoned her by name to come into his office. And he said, Francis, those pesky computers, they messed up again. If I had known you were coming, I would have come out to greet you myself. And then he sat down with her and spent time with her on that busy day. Although the President of the United States is unquestionably one of the most powerful men in the world, perhaps this gives us a small inkling, a small insight, when we begin to think of the sovereignty of the creator of the cosmos, who looks upon us with his mercy, who crowns us with glory and honor, when we are, in essence, nothing in his presence. 
Indeed, against the backdrop of the vastness of the universe and the sovereign God who reigns supreme, who are we, O Lord, that you are mindful of us? As the psalmist writes in verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God has crowned us with his glory. In Hamlet's monologue to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, he says, What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? We're dust. And yet God has crowned us with glory and honor. And he knows us by name. Moreover, not only does he crown us with glory and honor, but he has placed under the dominion of human beings the work of his hands. Everything was placed under Adam's feet, according to Genesis 1.28. And so this is why the psalmist bursts forth in praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And yet, in spite of the grandeur, in spite of this glory, in spite of the splendor that we see in the universe and in the cosmos, we know that something has gone wrong. And the author of Hebrews registers this fact when he quotes Psalm 8. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 and following, You have made for him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection unto him, he left nothing outside of his control. And notice what the author says, At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, the author looks out and he reads Psalm 8 and he says, you put everything under his control, everything under Adam's feet, and yet we look out and we can see everything is not under his feet. The world is filled with chaos. It's filled with sin. We see that something has gone awry. The fall has entered in by Adam's own doing and it has twisted and it has contorted and it has gnarled the creation. You see such, I think, twisted thinking in Darwin when Charles Darwin says, man with all his noble qualities, with his godlike intellect, which has penetrated into the movements and the constitutions of the solar system, with all these exalted powers, man still bears his bodily frame, the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. In other words, according to Darwin, we still bear the indelible stamp of our animal ancestry that we have descended from monkeys rather than bearing the indelible impression of the image of God. Sinful man looks out and sees the glory of man but yet attributes it to animals rather than to God. Something has gone wrong if we can come to those conclusions. We know that human beings are in rebellion against God. Were we to stop here, and were we only to look upon Psalm 8 as as a memory, as a relic of a bygone day, a beautiful portrait that's been ruined by the stain of sin, well, then we might have to come to a sad conclusion. 
But we have to realize that Psalm 8, as I said at the beginning, does not merely look back upon the tragedy of Adam's pre-fall glory and its loss. Rather, we have to remember Paul's crucial words from the fifth chapter of Romans when he writes in Romans 5.14, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam foreshadows Jesus. This means that as Psalm 8 looks back upon Adam's pre-fall glory, that is a foreshadow of Christ's glory as he reigns supreme over the creation. Psalm 8, therefore, we can say, tilts forward and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, which is why we want to look now to the second point, which is the second Son of Man. Now, what I assure you in this is that what I'm about to give you is a sip of water from a fire hydrant. Okay, so all I'm going to say is hang on, okay? We're going to go, we're going to move quickly, but if you go back and reflect upon this, you might be able to get a few better sips, but nevertheless, here we go. In that, in Psalm 8, Psalm 8 later appears in Daniel chapter 7. We may not realize it, but it does. In that in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a terrifying vision. In this vision, he sees in verse 3 a beast, a first beast that is like a lion and it had eagle's wings. He sees a second beast that is like a bear in verse 5. Then a third beast, which is like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And then he sees a fourth uh, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, a beast. Now, so often what happens is, is that interpreters look at these beasts and they immediately want to try to understand what nations stand behind this, these different beasts. Who are these beasts and when will they play out? I don't want you to think about those particulars. I just want us to stand back and take a big glance, a big gaze, if you will, at the overall image that Daniel sees in his vision. Because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, we read this, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. What's wrong with this picture? The beasts have dominion. The beasts have dominion. It's not Adam who has dominion. It is the beasts who have dominion. The creation is upside down in Daniel's vision. The beasts have dominion. And as you can see from the first part of Daniel chapter 7, they are run riot throughout the creation. But what happens in Daniel's vision is that God pulls up, if you will, in his fiery chariot, and he kills the beast of verse 11. And then he says in verse 12, and as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. And then who is it that enters the scene? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was prepared, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Ancient of Days arrives in his chariot and he strips the dominion away from the beasts. And then one like Adam, one like the Son of Man is presented before him. And the Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom and an everlasting dominion. In other words, Daniel first sees Psalm 8, but it's upside down. Because the beasts have dominion. And then God writes the creation. And he puts one like Adam back over the creation. This one like Adam is Jesus. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a colt, what did the children cry out in Matthew 21? Hosanna to the son of David. And this incensed the religious leaders. The Pharisees became indignant because they, and they tried to rebuke Jesus for allowing the children to say such a thing. How did Jesus respond? Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Jesus quotes Psalm 8. He says, don't you know that they are simply doing the things that God has ordained them to do? They are praising my name. He quotes Psalm 8. When the Pharisees tried Jesus and demanded that he tell them who he was, what words does Jesus use in his trial? Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and following. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Jesus says is, Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the one to whom God has given an everlasting kingdom, the one to whom God has given dominion over the creation, the one riding on the clouds, that's me. I am the Son of Man. The one that Daniel sees this vision of, which is Psalm chapter 8, righted and turned right side up with the Son of Man in dominion over the creation. That's me. Now we might think that that's not a great statement to say, but what did the high priest think? And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What decision Uh, What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus was claiming to be the son of man, the one prophesied in Psalm 8, the one prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is the second and final son of man who restores God's dominion throughout the creation. But not only does he restore God's dominion, but he also came to save us, the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. What does he say in Luke 19.10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
As the Apostle Paul reflects upon the truths of redemption in the first chapter of Ephesians, he thinks about the completed work of Christ and listen to how he invokes the language of Psalm 8 when he writes of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here he comes quoting Psalm 8, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the reigning son of man. When you read Psalm 8, you should not only see the reign of Adam, but you should also see the reign of Jesus. So this brings us to our third and final point praising the Son of Man. It's against this backdrop that Psalm 8 becomes a song of praise for Jesus, the Son of Man. We can certainly look out upon the creation and we can mourn Adam's fall. And with the author of Hebrews, we can even wonder, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to the Son of Man. But With and through the lens of Daniel's vision, we can see past the veil of this world's power and might, of empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, and we can rejoice. The God who made this cosmos, all 93 billion light years wide, filled with trillions of galaxies, has come to us in the person of his son, the son of man. And he currently reigns in the midst of his enemies. And on the last day, he will come and fulfill his inaugurated reign. Just as he calmed the waters upon the sea, he will declare to this world, peace be still. Jesus is in the process of writing his creation. You know, this is one of the things I've been reading this book about uh, elite commandos during the Vietnam War. And in this one passage of the book, it talked about the fact that they would take, these commandos would go on these reconnaissance missions in places they weren't supposed to be. And they would sometimes get into enemy troop contact and they would be outnumbered, outgunned. But what they would do is they would, uh, before they left, they would send one of their own, one of their own into an observer plane who would be able to call in airstrikes to defend them and to protect them. And one of the soldiers testified to this and said, it is the greatest source of comfort to be in enemy, under enemy fire, and then to call out on the radio, we need help, and to have one of our own tell us over the radio, I've got you covered, help is on the way, tell me what the problem is, and I'll take care of it. He said that it would just bring a sense of peace over them. That is what this passage should impart to us. It should impart to us a sense of peace because one of our own sits upon the throne, the Son of Man. And not only is he one of our own, 
But it's no mere president who calls us by name into the Oval Office, but rather it is the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth. According to Isaiah 43, verses 1 and following, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In another place, the prophet says of God, Behold, I have engraved your names on the palms of my hands. Our names are engraved upon the palms of Christ's hands, the Son of Man. And he beckons us into his presence. And he says, come into my presence. Come in. Come into my presence. And enjoy life and life eternal. As you gaze upon the creation through Psalm 8, do not look at it as the relic of a lost kingdom, but rather as the prophetic promise of the coming reign of Christ. Take courage and hope that our Heavenly Father has not forgotten us, but has sent us His Son, one like the Son of Adam, one like the Son of Man, to restore God's kingdom throughout the earth. Rejoice with King David and cry out with joy, thanksgiving, and praise that He has saved us in Christ. When we look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, Who are we that you are mindful of us, the sons and daughters of Adam that you care for us? You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned us with glory and honor. In Christ, you have given us dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under Christ's feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And indeed, beloved in Christ, may we cry out with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for you have indeed crowned us with glory and honor. And though we trampled upon that crown in our fallen Adam, you have graciously, undeservedly, crowned us with glory and honor in Christ, one like the son of Adam who has come to save us and one who will come upon the clouds of heaven itself. We rejoice, O Lord, that you are taking the dominion of the beasts away and that you have restored it back into the hands of Christ and that you have put all things under his feet. O Lord, may we look out upon this creation not filled with fear, but filled with hope, knowing that one like us reigns on the throne. Fill us with hope, we pray. Fill us with joy. And fill us with peace. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.